As we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. And for the final time, and at least um, in this current season, we're going to turn to Exodus together as a congregation, Exodus 39 and also Exodus chapter 40. We've taken three years. In 2021, we started in a series here in Exodus, and we paused it and came back to it in January of 2022, and now we're finishing, coming to the culmination of what all of this story has been headed to as we come to Exodus 39 and Exodus chapter 40. It took the Israelites 40 years to wander in the wilderness to get to the promised land. It didn't take us quite 40 years to get through this here, but uh, we, we are looking today at Exodus 39, starting in chapter 39, excuse me, starting in verse 32. Some of you have had the experience of building a new house and new house construction and all the joys of that and all the difficulties of that, the twists and the turns of that. Uh, many of you know what it is to, to buy a house and to do minor renovations to the house, maybe even major renovations to the house, the joys and the difficulties of that. Uh, you're going to come to a part of that uh, construction project, be it small or big, where you got a punch list you're knocking out those final details. And you're going to come to a time before the dust settles and before you've moved all the furniture in and you fully occupied that newly renovated space or you fully occupy that new constructed home where you've got to have that final home inspection. And the home inspector comes in and she or he has a trained eye to be able to look in every nook and cranny to make sure that that, that house was built according to the proper specifications. And only after then can you, can you fully occupy the space and use the space. And so we come now to the final building inspection of the tabernacle. We, we've had chapter after chapter that is given to us by God through Moses of the specs. Build it according to my plan. And so now we come to Exodus chapter 39. Can they move in? Can they, can they use the tabernacle to worship God is the question that is answered with crystal clarity. Starting in verse 32 of Exodus chapter 39, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Can you just put a little mental note in verse 32? Especially that last phrase, they did according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. We're going to come back to that even in this chapter here. Take a mental note there, verse 33. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all of its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The covering of the tans rammed skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all of its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all of its utensils and the oil for the light. The golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and screen for the entrance of the tent. The bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all of its utensils. The basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. 
the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest. Verse 43, according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Verse 43, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. If you're walking through the book of Exodus, I dare say this is not one of these VBS passages, probably. This is probably not one of the uh, greatest hits of Sunday school lessons that maybe you heard growing up from the book of Exodus. It gets overshadowed, no doubt, by the burning bush, no doubt, by the Red Sea, no doubt, by the plagues that occur. But here we find the end of the story. Here, Here we find the whole purpose of the Exodus story and where this story is headed to. Now, it's not the end of the story of the Israelites, but it is the story completion of of this chapter, this chapter that we know as Exodus. Why has God heard the cries, the groans of the Israelites as they were under the, the, the cruel, tyrannical hand of Pharaoh? Why has God delivered them out of slavery? Why has God parted the Red Sea? Why is God leading them to the promised land? What is, what is the telos of this? What is the purpose of this? What is the end and culmination of this? And here we have in Exodus 39, the work is done. The refrain is easy to pick up, although I, I hinted at it, but you would have heard it. Verse 32, the people of Israel did according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. You're going to have that repeated in verse 42 of Exodus 39. You have that repeated again in verse 43, three times Exodus 39. You turn over to chapter 40. Will you do that and look in your copy of God's word? In chapter 40, God tells Moses to do what? Set everything up and anoint it all. Verses 1 through 11. Wash and anoint the priest. Verses 12 through 15. Then we come to Exodus chapter 40, verse 16, and we read, This Moses did according, again, do you hear it? According to all the Lord had commanded him, so he did. That phrase in Exodus chapter 40, so the Lord commanded him, you're going to find it, look with me, in your Bible. In verse 16, you see it. In verse 19, you see it. Count it with me. Verse 23, you see it. Verse 25, you see that phrase. Verse 27, you see that phrase. Verse 29, you see that phrase. And verse 32, you got the same phrase. What is repeated in the Bible is emphasized in the Bible. This is not accidental. It's not coincidental, but it is providential. It's seven times that you have this phrase, so the Lord commanded him. What does seven symbolize in the Bible? You know this, it's completion. It's perfection. It is God, the tabernacle inspector saying, it is completed according to my specs, according to my specifications, according to exactly how I commanded Moses. They passed inspection. The work is finished. Then in verse 33, Exodus 40, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. End of story. They lived happily ever after. No, 
So so to to just see them moving into the tabernacle is not to see the grand climax of this story, the grand finale of this story. What it has all led us to is not just the work being finished, but his glory descending, pick up the story in verse 34 of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord again filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But the cloud was not taken up and they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Do you you feel the weight of verse 35? Do you feel the majesty of verse 35? That the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and filled the tabernacle in such a way that Moses, he cannot enter into the tabernacle. He can't even get into it because the glory of the Lord is so expansive in the tabernacle that there's not space for Moses. So he sees it as everyone else sees it from outside looking in. Now it's not the first glimpse. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses is on Mount Sinai. The Israelites from a distance, they see the fire, they see the smoke. The glory of the Lord is there upon Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 33, a few weeks ago, we talked about Moses asking God, I want to see you. I want to see you all in your glory. I want to see you in your majesty. And God does what? He gives him a glimpse. But here, the fullness of God, the glory of God has descended and it has filled this sacred space. And all of the radiant splendor that can only be described by these two images of a cloud and fire. And these two words cannot fully contain the weight of what is occurring right there in that portable meeting tent that we know as the tabernacle. I'm preachers, teachers, for thousands of years. I've tried to find the sturdiest words to carry the weight of the meaning of what is occurring here in Exodus chapter 40. What it all has led to that the glory of God has descended to this place. And I will join the long cloud of witnesses that stumble along trying to find the right words so you can behold God in his word of what is occurring in the cloud by day and the fire by night. The fullness of God has descended to the tabernacle and God in all of his magnificence, God in all of his worth, God in all of his loveliness and grandeur and all of his perfections are on full display right here. there, There is no analogy for this, is there? There is no, oh, you remember the other day when this happened? That No, there is no corollary to this. The fullness of God has descended. Marilyn Robinson is a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's an author of a four-volume set that walks with this congregationalist pastor in Iowa by the name of John Ames. First book is Gilead. It's an aging pastor that was asked by one of the parishioners, Pastor Ames, how do you describe heaven? 
He says, take the, the best of the experiences of your life, multiply them by two, and then you're on the way to imagining what heaven will be like. I've always found the math of John Ames, this fictional character, to be a little off. It seems like multiplying our best by two doesn't quite get to the hem of the garment of what we're going to experience in heaven. But it does get us going in the right direction, doesn't it? I mean, the fullness of God on display, we get a taste of this in the canvas of creation where God bestows upon us in a glimpse the beauty and the worth and the magnificence of his creation. And there are times, there are times, they're not every day, but there are times in your life and there are times in my life where we are all struck by his creation, where we are silenced, and dumbfounded by the beauty that we behold. I, I, I can count them on a few, you know, fingers here. I remember years ago, when my in-laws lived in Toronto, going with Danielle, and we go to the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls. I'd always, since Superman, you remember when Superman saved that kid? You remember that? Okay, maybe not, but uh, needless to say, I, as a young kid, was just struck by this. I always wanted to go to the Niagara Falls. I had this memory in my mind, or not a memory, but an aspiration of what it was going to look like. And remember parking and getting out and being, you know, half a mile away from the falls. But you're greeted by the mist off the falls and this immense roar. When you look over there, there, there are no words to describe. You can take all the pictures that you want to. You can get on the made mist and go up to the falls and get closer. You can go behind the falls. But there, there are no words to be able to fully describe the majesty of what you behold in his creation. Remember a few years ago, it was about this time, Danielle and I took our boys to the Grand Canyon. And once again, I had these images in my mind that I had built up of what it was going to be like. I'd seen the pictures, I'd seen movies and shows that had depicted. And there as the sun was setting and the cascading of the colors over this immense expanse that we know to be the Grand Canyon, it just simply takes your breath away and to know that this is just the canvas of our creator. And what is awe-inspiring as we look upon this just gives us a taste. This is what he has created. And the immensity and worth and magnificence of God, it descends upon the tabernacle and in all of his glory is there. And you do not have to get on a plane and go to one of the wonders of the world to be able to see this. I mean, just this last week, I'm running up Salter Road and the, the sun is rising and I look into the clouds and the, the glistening of the clouds as the sun and the yellows and the oranges begin to sing. So earth wakes up. And it's in those moments that we just get a taste of what makes us stop in our tracks and say, wow, wow. I can't fully describe the cloud and the fire because there are no words to fully describe what the Israelites beheld that day. Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton, 
longtime pastor, he says it this way, that the glory that filled the tabernacle was a spectacular display of the radiance of God's being, the God of the exodus, the God of power who made the heavens and the earth, the God of justice who plagued the Egyptians, the God of love who kept his covenant with Israel, the God of providence who led his people through the wilderness, the God of truth who gave them his law, the God of mercy who atoned for their sins, the God of holiness who set them apart for service. This great God was present in glory. When the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was in the house. As God guided them by the cloud by day and guided them by the fire by night, just do not forget, we sometimes conflate the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle is a temporary structure. This is a nomadic people. They are headed to the promised land. The wilderness is not the destination. And so this is a portable tent that is set up for God to be worshiped in. And so when the cloud is there, it is a red light. Stop, behold him. When the cloud rises up and heads out, it is a green light. Go, follow. And so what we discover in this passage here is really just a preview of coming attractions. That all of us in this very sanctuary have a better view than they did then. And I know you don't believe me with that. I know you think to yourself, well, if I could have just been there in the wilderness and have seen that cloud and seen that fire, boy, what a view. But I'm here to tell you that that was just a preview of coming attractions. That was just a taste of the glory of God that has entered into this atmosphere, my friends. And all of us in the sanctuary, we have a better view than they had then. If you see a preview of coming attractions, it's a little clip. It's maybe two minutes and 20 seconds. It is intended to do what? To whet your appetite. It's not intended to be the full meal of the movie that's coming out this summer. It's not intended to give away all the plot points of, of the, the show that it is intending for you to stream in the months ahead. It is intended for you to say, I want to see more of that. And what the Israelites saw in the tabernacle was just a preview of coming attractions of the glory of God that has descended not in a tent, but God has pitched his tent in the God-man, a person who walked and talked and lived as John would say in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled among us. In the Greek translation, the same word that is translated in the Greek in the Old Testament is used for this word dwelt among us in the New Testament here. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh. Jesus is the glory of God walking around and talking and entering in our human story so that one day we may be able to behold his glory in complete fullness. I mean, this is just marvelous news. That the end of all of human history, the end of it all, where we're headed and all of the joys of life and the difficulties of life and all of the smiles of life and the sadness of life and all of the good days of life and the bad days of life, where is all of this headed? It is headed to a place where you could behold him face to face. This is your reward, him. This is the end, him. That the end of the story of the Exodus 
is for God to bring them out of Egyptian captivity so that God could dwell with them in the tabernacle. And it is a preview of coming attractions of what we will behold in that day where we see him not through a veil, but we see him face to face. You see, the story of Jesus is God in all of his glory enters into our human story to be able to make a way, to make a path so that you could go through every stormy water of sin and come out on the other side of the destination of a relationship with him. I read just this last week of a famous explorer in the Middle Ages as the economic centers of Europe were trying to get to the spice trade of India. And for years and years and years and years, they couldn't get across what had become known as the Cape of Storms. It was the tip around Africa until one explorer by the name of Vasco da Gama, he tried again and he did what seemed to be impossible, forever silencing the doubters because he proved that that treacherous way wasn't inevitably disastrous. And the Cape of Storms, you know what it became known as? Not the Cape of Storms, but the Cape of Good Hope. And Jesus, he's paved a way. He has gone on a journey to be able to bring us through the storms of our life to the destination of a glorious reunion with our creator, sustainer, and savior. He transforms the storms into a destination of good hope. And and we we have a preview of what that's gonna look like. One day, every follower of Jesus will behold this picture that we have as the curtains are pulled back in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Sea represented disaster, tumult, uncertainty. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, my friends shall no more be. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But we're headed to a sure destination. If you are a follower of Christ, if you trusted him as your savior, this is where we're headed to, a place not just of of reunion with our earthly loved ones who've gone ahead, as great as that is, the greatest reunion we have is with the fullness of the glory of God as we're able to see his magnificence, his worth, his loveliness, his grandeur, all of his perfections, we're able to behold on full display. This is where we're headed. This is your sure destination as a follower of Christ. I read just this last week, J.R.R. Tolkien's letters and he has written a letter to his son, Michael, in the midst of the, of the difficulty of World War II. And in the midst of the uncertainty in the face of that brutal war, he says to his son, let us both take heart of hope and faith. There's a place, Tolkien says, called heaven, where the good here unfinished is completed. And where the stories unwritten 
and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. We may laugh together yet. This is where you're headed. You're headed to a place where you will behold him in all of his fullness. You're headed to a place where the good here unfinished is completed, where the stories that are unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. And when you know what's around the corner, when you know what is around the corner, it gives you hope in the midst of the twists and the turns in the midst of the journey of your life. If you know what is ahead, it can give you the hope to endure the goods and the bad days of life here on earth. And there's so many good days, is there not? But if we're going to be honest here, sometimes those good days give way to the muck and the mire of the difficult days. And no matter how great the green pastures of your life and how great and numerous the still waters are, they will, my friend, transform into the valley of the shadow of death. And it's then that you're able to know that your shepherd guides you and his rod and his staff, they comfort you. And he's prepared a place before you. In the presence of your own enemies, he's anointed your head with all his cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell. Me, you, we, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you know who lives there, it is God himself. And so there are times in life where there is an uncertain journey that is before us and that journey is filled with tears. But I'm here just to remind you around the corner, every tear will be wiped away. There are times in the uncertain journey of today that is filled with death, but I'm going to remind you that around the corner, death will be no more. There are times in the midst of our journey where there are pains and there are disappointments, but I'm here to remind you that around the corner, every pain is transformed into praise and every disappointment is transformed into endless doxology. This is just around the corner. On the other side, of what our world calls the end. And that's what the world says death is. The world has no hope in the face of death. The world has no solace. To the world, death is the uncertain. To the world, death is unknown. To the world, death is the end. To the world, death is the last song to be sung. It is the last chapter to be written. But if you are a follower of Christ, here is the good news that just around the corner, you will behold him face to face. Just around the corner, you will be in his presence, not just for a day, but you will be in his presence where every day is just the beginning of the best day ever. Every day will be a day where the good here unfinished is completed, where the stories that are unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. You will behold him face to face. Amen. Let us pray.